The following is presented by Lanier Technical College, Concept One Pulley Systems, and Year One Classic Muscle Car Restoration Parts. Hit it! Hang on, you're now part of the fastest podcast on the planet, Bud's Garage Overdrive. Produced in the studios of Jacobs Media, located in beautiful downtown Gainesville, Georgia. On today's show, Ford News and Rumors, Whiskey and Two Wheels, and Mandatory Subscriptions, plus... Our special guest, Kyle Petty, with his takes on life in NASCAR. All that and a whole bunch more informative automotive buffoonery with Bud and Tim. Let's kick it in overdrive. Welcome in, folks. This is Bud Hughes, resident car nut, and Tim DePasquale, a poster to the stars. Tim, how you doing today? I'm great, Bud. How you doing? I'm excited. Oh, yeah? We got we got actually have a couple guests on the show today. Okay. Okay. Uh, the first one... Uh, has been heard on one of our other podcasts. My son, Aaron. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is the general manager of the local Ford dealership. We're going to talk about some things, some products that are coming out from Ford. So it's not specific to the dealership. It's nationwide. Right. And a, a lot of things we do on the regular Bud's Garage radio show is nationwide stuff. You just, you know, it, it would be the same whether it was here in Gainesville, Georgia, or Des Moines, Iowa. Oh, sure. You're talking about Fords, you're talking about Fords. Mm-hmm. Aaron's got some very good takes on things, and he's, he's a little tongue-in-cheek. I don't know where he gets his demented humor uh, from. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, he's, he's going to come in and tell us a little bit about some Ford stuff. And then uh, something new to me, I've seen it on movie things that I've done on television where you want to rent a movie, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, what was free, you got to pay a couple bucks for. Oh, yeah. You know, the subscription stuff. They're mm-hmm. doing this on cars now. Right. And they've been doing it. I just don't have a car that I've... that I've, I've got OnStar on the vet, mm-hmm. which I'm going to cancel. And let me explain why. Okay. I was going to somewhere here in Georgia, and I was in an unfamiliar part of the, the state. Let's put it that way. And uh, so I dialed up OnStar, and I got a robot. Why? The best thing about that... That whole thing was you used to be able to talk to a person. A human being. Yeah. Yeah. Now I can't even get transferred to a human being. Oh, my goodness. So, there we go again. Hello, you should not be in this neighborhood. Yeah, no, you no. It wasn't. No, right I, now. no. <laughs> get out of there. No, what had happened, we were on 575, which I don't drive very often, uh-huh. and I could see that it was tied up for several miles. Right. All I wanted to do was get some help to get off. Mm-hmm. You should have called your buddy Doug Turnbull. Oh, well... Actually, he was out of town. <laughs> he was going to Texas to do a race there. So, anyway, um, yeah, okay. but I, I was just so aggravated when I got a, you know, what mm-hmm. what can I help you with? And I knew yeah. it wasn't, you know, and that's that's just me. I'm just saying. Have you ever uh, paid five thousand bucks for a shot of whiskey? We're going to talk about that. Okay. And uh, then our special guest is Kyle Petty. He's going to talk a little bit about his book mm-hmm. that he released last year and uh, just generalities about life. He's got a different perspective on it, and uh, you know, it's just fun to visit with him. When yeah. we had him on the radio show, he, he scared the heck out of me because I remember introducing him, and then there was this huge pause uh-huh. because I talked about his music, and I had actually seen him in concert here in Georgia with another artist, and he just couldn't believe that somebody remembered seeing him. Back oh, then. yeah. <laughs> and then we, we had a good visit about guitars and cars and things like that. So he's coming up after all the other automotive buffonery. Okay. All right. Here we go. The guy that's sitting next to us right now, yeah. that, would, that would be Aaron Hughes from uh, Green Ford. Uh, 
Welcome into Bud's Garage. Hey guys, how we doing? We're good. doing great. Well, good. What's hot at the dealership? Truck month. Truck month. What March kind of is we got? truck month. We've got all kinds of trucks. We got Rangers, F one fifties, F two fifties. We've even been selling some Mavericks here and there. And they come in, they go quick. Like oh, that. I bet Mavericks they do. Going quick. Well, since yeah, you brought up Mavericks, busy. let's jump right on Mavericks. They all right, let's talk Nav- about Mavericks. They have a new version coming out. Yep. Uh, the Tremor. They have the Tremor. Uh, well, currently Ford has the Tremor in the Bronco. They have the Tremor in the uh, Super Duties as well as in the F-150s. Uh, and with the Maverick, uh, what they're doing with it is basically you get a little bit bigger wheel and uh, off-road tire. Gives you more ground clearance. Um, and uh, it is uh, not the hybrid. It's only available with the uh, gas engine. Now, why is that, so, yeah. do you wonder? Uh, I think uh, I think because they're wanting it to have a little bit more off-roadiness to it, so it needs a little bit more torque towing oh, as oh, well. Okay. You can still get it with the max towing package as well on the Tremor. So yeah, it's it, kind of an. I'm not going to say it's totally an appearance package because it does have the difference in tires and wheels and that, but it it kind of helps out the truck a little bit, raising it. That sort of thing gives it a little bit more off-road presence. Okay. Yeah. And it's, and it's got a waterproof storage compartment. Oh yeah, yeah. Automatic emergency <laughs> brakes. Well, that's that's nice too. Yeah. yeah. I, uh-huh. If I'm in a, a, a position where I have to have a water compartment in a vehicle, I'm, I've I've done something horribly wrong anyway. That's to be honest with think. you. Yeah. Right. Well, us older guys could use that, but <laughs> yeah. it'd be for a whole different. Whole well, different that's, reason. that's entirely different. <laughs> but why is it only rated for two thousand pounds? Uh, that's a standard. The Maverick uh, is rated for two thousand pounds, okay. unless you have uh, the Max Tow package, which is the all-wheel drive, and then you're rated for four thousand pounds. So that's oh. that's pretty much the same as as a standard Maverick. So the Max yep. Tow package is all-wheel drive. I didn't realize that. Yes, it is a requirement. Oh. Yeah, oh, ma- oh. maximum tow package is all-wheel drive, um, and that will tow four thousand pounds, which is fantastic. Uh, you know, for most yeah. people, yeah, that's it's great. Yeah, right. if if you have a, a utility trailer or even I have an enclosed trailer, uh, and it's great for that, a, a little uh, six by ten trailer, and, and it works great. Well. Speaking of waterproof compartments. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of waterproof compartments. Ooh. The 2023 Bronco Everglade, Everglades yes. likes to play in the water. It does. Uh, what Ford has done, uh, you may have seen on the road some of these Bronco uh, Raptors, which are just a beautiful vehicle. It's a, it's a really cool a uh, really cool car, and uh, they have come up with not only the Raptor, but they also have the Everglades. And the Everglades is, uh, um, it's made for more of a water-type environment. So you're dealing with the snorkel, so it's it's not just, uh, you know, so it's got an engine snorkel. It has some uh, additional venting and that sort of thing. Uh, the uh, You know, obviously the doors are removable on all the Broncos. It does, it is the Sasquatch package, so it's it's got the bigger tires lifted, and uh, it's made for, uh, for getting muddy. I, I, I just got to... This is a dumb question, I guess. Mm-hmm. 35-inch tire, okay? Yeah. Uh, 35-inch tire is swell. Right. But what's half of 35, Tim? Real quick. 17. Thank you. Well done, and Tim. A half. And a half. Well, yeah. You I mean, you're not a rain way. man. I, yeah. I understand yeah. it. Well, right. Maybe you'd have one of these if you were a man. I don't know. <laughs> so you got, it, from the center of the tire down, you got 17 inches, mm-hmm. 17 and a half inches. This thing will go through 36 and a half inches. Right. And the doors are removable. Where do the doors wind up <laughs> in this? Oh, yeah. Where is the floorboard in this thing? At what uh, point do you have water running in and running out at the same time? Well, right. That's a good question. Well, that's um, why they put drain plugs in the floors. Yeah, I think uh, you know, I think it's one of those deals where this thing is made to actually drive, uh, you know, in, in a situation where you're really, really getting wet. You're the guy. Really you, wet. You're like the, the snorkels up above the windshield type of wet. You so know? You're, you're the guy that they say, don't bring your truck to the car wash. 
Right, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, You're yeah, the guy right. on Sunday that the whole uh-huh. side of the vehicle is all yeah. plastered with Where all you can see is the windshield wiper marks. Yeah, yeah. yeah this and, would be the truck for you if you're that guy. Yeah. That would be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. If you're into the mud bogging and uh Yeah, but you know how I am with paint you're and good stuff go. like that. Well, I'm you're thinking, not that guy. No, not <laughs> I will that tell guy. you. I, I've never done any of that <laughs> on purpose. No. Uh, but this thing is also good in the dry, as far as it says. Oh, the seats are posted in marine-grade yeah, vinyl. Yeah, it uses a marine Oh, marine and the uncarpeted so washout floor. All right, well, okay. that makes sense. So yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, it's built correctly if you're a mud bogger, if you're into, mm-hmm. uh, you know, into uh, doing a lot of, you know, going through creeks and things like that. And a lot of these guys are. Um, I have one of the guys that works for me, and uh, every weekend he's doing off-road stuff. He loves it. Wow. And yeah, the, price, the starting price on these is fifty-five grand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you're you're right in there, and like I say, it's kind of the opposite of the Bronco Raptor as far as the way it's designed. Whereas the Bronco Raptor's more, uh, you get into the rock crawling and, and sand. Uh, right. Whereas the Everglades is, is a little bit more for the the mud and swamp. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Well, I it's a niche. It, if yeah. it's a niche, I there guess if go. that's what you're looking for, it is a niche. It's there's something for everybody. Well. What if, you're, what if your deal is a Mustang? Tell us a little oh, bit about what's right. going on with the if Mustang. If your deal is a Mustang, I think everybody on the planet now knows the Mustang's been redesigned for 2024. What everybody doesn't know is you can start getting your orders in on the 27th of this month. Mm. So the order bank opens. Uh, we're extremely excited about that. We've had a bunch. I'll tell you what, working for Ford the last few years, we've had tons of... Uh, just just buzz about so many different vehicles, you know, whether it was when the Mach-E came out or when the Maverick has just been huge, but also the Bronco. We've, I mean, you guys have been talking about the Bronco for years and years and years, and now it's still, we're still every episode talking about the Bronco right. and the Bronco well, Sport. It, it really is. It's, yeah. Ford is coming out with some just amazingly fantastic vehicles and then redesigning some of the other stuff, and, and this it is time for an upgrade on the Mustang. And it is it is a very nice vehicle, and honestly, the pricing of the thing's not much different than everything is now. So you're not seeing a huge price increase on the Mustang. No, the, the, very most, nice. the most expensive one I see is the uh, Dark Horse. Yeah. Uh, but it's similar to the Mach 1. Yeah, the, the Dark Horse and the pricing is just about the same as the Mach 1. It's going to be very, very similar, uh, and, and it'll be the all-new, you know, everything that's going to be new in 24 will be on the Dark Horse. Yeah, yeah. F- fifty-seven grand. Yeah, there you go. Well, that's not and crazy. No, it's to not crazy. Stuff, and what I like, and, and the same thing with the Mach. I've got a Mach One right now in the showroom, and I love the car because it's it's for those people that you know really like a Mustang GT, but would like just a little extra performance without going to the you know over a hundred thousand dollar you know GT five hundred or something, which is which is a incredible car. But you can really drive the Mach 1 on the road. I mean, you, you still have a, a 5.0 engine. It's got a little extra performance, has better brakes, uh, and, and a nicer interior. But it's still a fun car to drive, you know. I got a bone to pick with uh, Ford about this hand-painted stripe. The hand-painted stripe. Yeah, remember when the hand-painted stripe on the GT500 was a 10 thousand dollar oh it's still a ten thousand dollar option absolutely can't i just bring you're really good with an airbrush can't we just bring it to you and i i could probably put one on there for less than 10 grand for you Nine, how about, about $9,200? $9, I'll save you 800 bucks and airbrush your car for you. The yeah. stripes, the yeah. white stripes. Yeah, it is. Uh, that was an add-on that has kind of been something we've all... Uh, commented on for sure over but the over cool the thing about it is when you paint on a stripe and then you clear over it you know it's never coming off and it, it it's, oh no it, know, it looks really fantastic cool. yeah. i'll tell you um i think you guys have uh, andy duff from colorworks by duff andy oh yeah, yeah. Pooja on a lot of times mm-hmm. uh, andy had done 
uh, I can't even remember, was Camaro or, 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 or Chevelle or something. I was over at his shop one day, and his was unbelievable. His, you couldn't even tell. I mean, the clear coat, you couldn't even tell there was different paint or anything. His was smooth as glass. Um, and, and Ford does a good job. They don't do that good a job. <laughs> Not for ten grand. You know? Okay, I was just saying, uh, I don't want to get you in trouble. I was just That's wondering right. about a $10,000 stripe. You know, $10,000 stripe. I'll take the vinyl stripe and replace it, well, I'm probably 8,000 times. Let me ask you guys a question. Have either of you ever paid $5,000 for a shot of whiskey? Uh, no. No. <laughs> I've never paid $5 for a shot of whiskey. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, apparently, uh, Indian motorcycles think some folks will. You want to run with this motorcycle man? Yeah, they've, they've got a new model out. Well, I guess they've been doing this for a while, and, and they put a shot of whiskey into the paint. Jack Daniels, to be specific. Yeah, Jack Daniels. You know, and, and, they're, and they're, they're promoting and marketing it as the Jack Daniels edition. I'm not a huge fan of this, but I'm going to tell you, as a motorcycle rider, we don't need any more motivation to drink while we're riding. And there's so many people that use their motorcycle as an excuse to bar hop on weekends and and then wind up dead. I, I, I just, I, I don't know. It's... It, it don't do anything for me, but if you want one, only $5,000 additional to have that uh, shot of Jack Daniels mixed in your paint. I wonder what it does. Well, never. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking on the chemical side. What does it do to the paint? You know, you try to, yeah, keep, every, I, you try to keep everything out of paint when you're spraying it. Well, you know, what, you know when I'm, as a former painter, the last thing painters need is to have alcohol around pouring it into the paint. It might be, does any of it actually get into the paint? Huh. <laughs> I thought you were going to say as a former drinker, but I knew better than that. So, no, anyway, anyway, former? <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> yeah, doing radio with me will... Uh, we'll, yes, uh-huh. We'll step I you know. up several I'm notches. Yeah. Just begin my 12-step program. <laughs> <laughs> GMC. And I did not realize in Buick, and I'm not picking on anybody here. This is just a story. Are dropping their $1,500 mandatory OnStar subscription on most of their models of vehicles. I didn't realize this was a thing. Until my neighbor's daughter had her uh, automobile recalled, uh, and they kept it for three months. Really? Waiting for the, the part. Uh-huh. But they didn't want anybody driving the things. Okay. Okay. And uh, she said she, it really ticked her off. They gave her a car to drive, but she mm-hmm. had to keep paying all her subscriptions on, on the stuff that the car has in it. Yeah. As much as the cars cost, they ought to give it to you anyway. That's what I'm thinking. So right. they, they apparently don't roll it into the price. Uh, you know, this, this thing, in-car Wi-Fi, uh, an, a stolen vehicle late locator, and uh, turn-by-turn navigation is 50 bucks a month. 50 okay. bucks a month? Yeah. Holy cow. But, I'm, you know, wow. now, now they're offering some, some bargains on their stuff that'll be $25 a month. And then you can increase the levels of functionality. Well, and that's it. But, you know, all the manufacturers are going in this direction for the subscriptions to increase their revenue. Like BMW Uh, is adding, uh, uh, if you want to use your heated seats, they're all wired up, but they won't turn on unless you pay a subscription subscription. monthly. Is that crazy? A bun warmer subscription. Yes. Right. Wow. Uh, Yeah, I just think when they roll this into the price of the car, whether they tell you or don't tell you and you start paying this stuff, I just... It's like the movie channels and stuff. All mm-hmm. the stuff used to be free. Yeah. Now you now you you got a movie you want to see, 
and you put it on, it's supposed to be free, and it says three ninety nine. Well, you sit there, and you think, well, it's only 4 bucks. Yeah. And I'm thinking, how many gazillion people did that? Yeah. That particular night, said, oh, right. it's only 4 bucks. It's only 4 bucks. Yeah. yeah. What the heck? Well, now, Tim, you and I often do, you at the upholstery shop or in your building exploits or your tractoring or, mm-hmm. you know, stuff out in our shop, we often do engineering. Back- oh, yes. Backyard oh, engineering. Absolutely. Uh this is not the same. I'm going to talk about a program at Lanier Technical College, okay. which is actually an engineering technology program. Oh. Where you can get your feet wet mm-hmm. in the engineering careers. Right. Uh, be it mechanical, electrical, um, you know, how, how the technology applies to industrial engineering, electrical engineering, mechanical engineering. You think that would help us? It's an overall view of things. No, mm-hmm. I, I don't think we'd last 10 minutes in the class. As soon as I got to the math portion, I'd be, oh, yeah. I'd be out of there. <laughs> but that's not what this is about. No. This is about applying engineering techniques to on-the-job work sites. Mm-hmm. So they give you a well-rounded, if you will, look at what engineering actually involves in the building industry, the uh, you know, plant uh, operations industry, yep. um, you know, out in the real world. Right. So it stresses laboratory stuff because you need to know how certain things work and how different tools work. Oh, yeah. Uh, but a lot of it is, is uh, you know, combined with some opportunities here in the community or whatever community you're in mm-hmm. uh, that can be applied. And you can further your, your you know, your, your uh, education by going on and getting more training. Yeah. But this gives you, this is, this is a cool thing about technical schools. They give you a chance to explore topics and mm-hmm. careers before you sign up for four years of it. Right, right. And, uh, you know, you can get an engineering technology degree. You can get a certificate in engineering technology basics, which would allow you to go to work for a company and do some OJT. Mm-hmm. And uh, engineering technology fundamental certificates. So these are, these are places where you can go and maybe go to a construction place or somebody that's a manufacturer and say, look, I know a little bit about the engineering. Could I get into your program? Right. What else do I need? And... Uh, you know, you can get this at Lanier Technical College. Again, we got to stress this is something you can put in your back pocket and take it to anywhere in the country. Absolutely. Uh, you can reach out to Jody Brookshire or John Dunbar or just go to LanierTech.edu, mm-hmm. click on Engineering Technolo- Technology Program, and find out what's going on because uh, very few things happen nowadays without an engineer. Yeah, you got that right. Yeah. So, the Near Technical College, uh, five locations here in Georgia, um, and they, they welcome folks from out of state, out of country, whatever it may be. They have all sorts of uh, financial programs for you. And, of course, if you live here in Georgia, you've got the Hope Grant, the Hope Scholarship, and that all applies, right. and many other things. Check them out, LinearTech.edu. Kyle Petty, welcome into Bud's Garage Overdrive. Hey, Kyle. How's it going, man? Thanks for having me. Well, um, we we've got a we got a bunch of questions here. We aren't going to get to them all, but let's uh, let's plug away <laughs> at it first of all. Uh, the I wanted to ask you since the book was released, you now have a new son. Oh yes, yes, yes third How, son, Devon um, Isley. How's he doing? Doing great, doing great. He is three months old, so I have a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a three-month-old, and um, three little boys. Uh, they're all named after um, my family and and my wife Morgan, her family. Uh, their their surnames and uh, 
from maternal grandparents and and paternal grandparents. So it's it's pretty cool, man. It's it's really pretty cool to see these kids uh, and to be a part of that. So I'm I'm listen. I'm I'm excited. I'm just living the dream again, man. It's not doing it all over again, so it's been a lot of fun. That's cool. Hey, Kyle, so you recently published a book named Swerve or Die. How has the book been received, and what are the sales to date? You know what? That's a great question. Um, and, and I'm going to be totally honest with you. When we, when we put this thing out there, you know, we were a, a national bestseller on the independent books and Amazon and a lot of places. I mean, this thing just took off. Um, and within the first week, and I, and, I, and I hope you guys can appreciate this and understand this, um, within the first week, of, in the first few days, um, to be honest with you, I got emails and texts from Mark Martin and Ray Everham and Clay Campbell, whose who's granddad, Clay Earl, uh, built Martinsville Speedway and who Clay ran, you know, he ran there forever, ran the, ran the Speedway forever. Um, God, man, from so many, Joey Logano, from so many different drivers and, and crew members that I had worked with, um, that I, I looked at Morgan and I told her, I said, I don't care if it sells another book. I, I'm not even keeping up with it because wow. this, is, it, this is as good as it gets. When, when your peers and the people that you grew up with and the people that you were friends with, when they read it and they were like, man, I learned something. That, that was, I never knew that about you or that's an interesting story or I didn't know what you went through at the time or things like that. Then for me, then, then that was, that was, that was cool. You know what I mean? That was just a, a, a cool thing. So, um, for me that, that I, I went to the top. So, you know, I, I think in the first couple of weeks it sold 15, 18,000 copies, but, um, man, that first week I was already over the moon with it. That's cool. How many books, uh, how many book signings have you done nationwide? <laughs> Every time I go to the racetrack, I do them. Uh, so that's been wherever it's been since August, man. Everywhere we've been since August. It was in Charlotte this weekend, you know, Talladega, Birmingham, Dallas, uh, golly, man, Richmond, just everywhere. And I still got Martinsville, Vegas, uh, Homestead, Phoenix, so all those. And then, um, you know, I've done a lot through the, through the southeast. down sure. and, and everywhere I go, it's, just, it's this thing. Everywhere I go, I've traveled to Daytona and I wasn't racing at Daytona or wasn't, wasn't doing the race down there, but I traveled to Daytona and I stopped in, um, uh, St. Augustine, Daytona, uh, Savannah and went into bookstores and found my book and signed them and put them back on the shelf and then called the people and told them I'd signed their books. Uh, so to go there and buy them. So that, that, that's been pretty cool. So I've done a bunch of those things too. Yeah. I'm, I'm surprised somebody didn't, didn't grab you as you're, you know, signing books in the store. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Yeah. How, um, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, how many books did you sign nationwide in your town? You've gone to the track and stuff. Are you, uh, I, I was at uh, Petit Le Mans a, a couple of weeks ago, and Jimmy was there, and he, you know, he had copies of his books with him. Are you taking copies of your book with you so people can get them at the racetrack? Yeah, what I did, I, cool. I just put them on a souvenir rig, put them on the Chevy souvenir rig, you know, that, that handles all the souvenirs for okay. uh, Petty GMS. Um, that keeps me from having to lug those heavy things around, man. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not going to. You know, there's a weight limit when you fly. Uh, so that, that's kind of the way. You, you carry 15 or 20 books. I'm way over the weight limit okay. in my bag. So uh, I, I just go ahead and ship them ahead of time. All right. So the stories that have been related to you by your readers, uh, are there enough for a second book? Well, here's the thing. 
Okay, so let, let me, let's go back to the very, very beginning. Um, in the very beginning, um, you know, when the pandemic hit, my, Morgan was, she was pregnant with our second child, with, with Cotton mm-hmm. in 2000. And, you know, no, no one really knew how, how, um, how, the, how, you know, COVID would affect uh, fetus, how it would affect a pregnant woman. Sure. Uh, women at that point in time. So we just locked up at the house. And, um, you know, I play guitar and write music and do all that stuff. So uh, I was already doing some of that stuff. So I, I thought, and we had talked about it, and I said, you know what, I'm just going to write down some crazy stories, things that happened to me, you know, just see if I can write a story. So we, I wrote some stuff, and I showed it to my wife, and she said, you know, that's pretty good. You, you need to write some more. So I wrote three or four, and um, she said, why don't, we try to, why don't you try to make a book? And I said, well, listen, that's way above my pay grade, man. So uh, I called, got in touch with some people, and they hooked me up with Ellis, who had worked with Michael Waltrip. And I sent him a bunch of stuff, and he's like, well, where do you want it to go? And we had a long discussion on what, what really wanted, you know, how it would be with my granddad and my dad, and, uh, then Adam. And, you know, and the book is Adam. And it starts with Adam and sure. it ends, basically, with, with Adam and, and how that affected all of our lives and how it affected the business and how it affected everything. And uh, interspersed between there are little stories about uh, how I grew up and racing with my dad and then uh, Morgan's family and just different things. So, um, you know, along the way, I will say this, uh, a lot of funny stories and crazy stories that I wanted to put in it, uh, they end up on the cutting room floor. So I, I keep telling people the next book will just be Kyle Petty's short story or story time with Kyle Petty. Yeah, you know what I mean? And it will it won't be a book book. It'll just be a bunch of short stories. So uh eventually I'll I'll get around to, to scraping them all up off the floor and putting them in volume two, but there's a, there's still a lot of stories left. Story time with Kyle Petty. That's so <laughs> that sounds really good. I like that. Uh if so the pandemic obviously affected you and you weren't you were, if there if there hadn't been a pandemic, um, would this book exist? No. No, no way it would have. Um, That's a shame. You know, I've, I've been, yeah, I, I've been, I have been, so here's what I tell people, okay, and, and this is a way, this is just my life, um, and it's not right, wrong, or indifferent, it's my normal, but I, I was born in June of 1960 and went to my first race in July of 1960, mm-hmm. um, and I've just been going to the racetrack ever since. Um, you know, even when I was in elementary school and in middle school and in high school, and then by then I was racing. And then you're driving, and the next thing you know, it's, you know, February 1st to, no, to the end of November. Uh, you build a new car in December and test in January, and you're at it again. And that's the way it is. It's just, that's a circle of life for me. And, and it's always been. So there was never, there was never any time to stop um, and never any time to get away from it. And even when I, when I, when I stopped driving, um, you know, I still did speed, and then I was on Fox, and then I went to NBC. And you're, you're still doing stuff. And I was still working with my dad's team and doing stuff. So there was never any time. So I, I, I honestly believe if the pandemic had not hit uh, and had not come along, then I was never going to stop. Uh, there was no, I was never going to take that time and stop it at any point in time. And it's been amazing to me. I listen to a lot of music um, listen and listen to a lot of music podcasts and stuff. And I have been amazed... Um, with with the the artists um, who have come out of the pandemic, and and you listen to the podcast and you listen to, to the interviews with them, and they're like, 
Yeah, man, I, I wrote three albums during yeah, the pandemic. Right. I, I wrote, I wrote, I was so creative during the pandemic because I had time. I didn't have to be on the road traveling. I wasn't touring. I wasn't doing that. I was just home with my family. And it's crazy. It, it allowed a lot of people um, to do what they were doing. And then there's other people that you hear and, and people were, uh, and, and listen, again, I told you I play guitar. You couldn't get guitar strength during the pandemic. I think everybody in the world took up guitar lessons. Uh, <laughs> I thought about that. Guitar. You know, I mean, just so much, so many things started for people and it gave them an opportunity. Uh, you know, after you sit at home and watch, you know, the entire, uh, the entire, what, 10 or 15 seasons of Murder, She Wrote, you're pretty much bored. Uh, you know, and TV's over with. It's time to move on to something else. So that's kind of... Uh, people started experimenting and painting and doing different things, and I, I, there wouldn't be a book without it. Oh, that's very interesting. You know what interested me about uh, artists that were making albums during the pandemic is they were all in different places. I mean, the, the band members were all in different places. When I recorded an album, yeah. we were all in the studio, and you could interact with each other and change things around in that. But, the, you know, you got the guitar player sending their stuff, the drummer sending their stuff, and it's being produced, and... He, it makes you realize that stuff can actually be done that way instead of everybody having to get together, yeah. disrupting family life and whatever, and until you go on the road. Yeah. That, so the fascinating part about the music stuff for me, uh, talking to music people, is, you know, I, I think when Pro Tools come along, it changed the way a lot of people recorded stuff at home and a lot of people did stuff. But with the way technology is, you know, I can be in North Carolina, you can be in Georgia, uh, somebody else can be in California. Somebody else can be in Washington State. But it's like we're in the same room. Right. It's like we're in the same room. It's real time now. It's real time. And even if I come up with something, you know, I can send it to you. I put it, put it down, send it to you. You tweak it. You remix it. You add your piece to it. You send it to the third person. They send it to the fourth person. And by the time it comes along, it comes back, uh, it's like that game of telephone, man. You know, it's, it's, a, different, it's a different song. Mm -hmm. um, and. And that's, that's the amazing part, man, that, that you could be creative um, alone or you could be in that virtual community and, and do it uh, collectively, even though you were in different places. Okay, let's do an album together. Tim's got a question, man. Yeah, yeah so yeah. speaking of music, there's a Brad Paisley song, If I Could Write a Letter to Me. Was this book your letter to you? That's a really good question. And I'm, I'm going to say no. But I am going to say this is what it was. Um, you know, I think when we got into the part, when I got into the part about Randy uh -huh. uh, at Talladega, right. um, you know, in the, in the 70s when I was 14, when I got into the part uh, of Adam, uh -huh. um, you know, they, we're, we're talking 2020, uh -huh. you know, the end of 2020, the beginning of 21, by the time we got to that section and really got into to a part of that. But I, I realized that, it had been 20 years um, and I had never really dealt with it. And for Randy, it had been, you know, man, 40 some years. And I had never, I never really thought about it. You know, I thought I dealt with it, but you, but you don't, you know, there's some things you just, you just don't. And um, you know, race car drivers are funny people. Anyhow, um, they can, they can compartmentalize stuff. They can put, put things in a box and say, well, that'll never happen to me because of this or that happened to him because of this, you know, and you just, that's your answer. It's a definitive answer. You put a lid on the box and you never go back and question it. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, I, there's a lot of things that I had never, never dealt with, with, with Adam's accident. So 
going back and walking down that long hallway and opening that box uh, was incredibly painful. So I won't say it was a letter to me, um, but it was it was an opportunity to heal. Um, and I think that's what the book is for me as much as anything. It's, it was an opportunity to, to really look at it and to look at it from different sides, to look at it from my side and from my family's side and from over our Austin and Montgomery Lee's side and just from, from different areas and see it in its entirety um, instead of just a little, little piece of it. So that, that was, it was more that than it was anything else. When we had you on the radio show back in August, you mentioned that, uh, you know, you did the audio version of this book, which most authors, most authors don't do that. They have somebody, you know, read the book or whatever. But you did the audio, and you mentioned that that, that made you process things differently than writing. How so? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think it's like what you guys are doing right now. You know, you ask questions, um, and and... You know, it's funny. I, I've got a couple of t- TV shows, and I do things, and I'll write the questions down. But then when I get ready to speak them, they sound different for some reason. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. Or they come out different. You know what I mean? Yeah. And sometimes they sometimes they come out with a totally different question. You know, even from the question that I had in mind, and and it catches me off guard sometimes. And and I think that was the thing with with writing it down in silence was one thing, speaking it and hearing it with my own ears, um, and hearing my words. Um, it was something totally different. It was something totally different. And I, I, and I did the book because I, I think I did the book and I read it um, because I do TV, because people know my voice. Um, and, and, you know, you're used to hearing my voice. You're used to hearing my voice, you know, in, on radio or TV or whatever it may be. So it would have been strange for somebody else to read my book, you know, and, and, and read it that way because people would have said, well, you know, I, I don't hear Kyle saying that or I don't hear but when you hear me say it, you say, well, that's, that's kind of the way he talks, man. That's just the way he is. Absolutely. So I, I think that was, that was part of it. But, yeah, it was, uh, that was harder than writing. And in the, end, in the end, I think that was a harder process for me or a harder process to, to deal with um, than the writing piece was. Um, the writing, and in and, and hindsight, the writing, even though it took forever, and it was hard to get through that those sections. Uh, the writing was easy compared to reading it. Do you, do you think if you had spoken the book before you wrote it? I don't know if anybody does that, but you know, yeah, it, would it would it have been a different uh, different outcome? Yeah, maybe. You know, yeah, maybe if I'd have verbalized it to someone, um, right? You know what I mean? But but I never really verbalized it to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know what I mean? I mean, it's like. Even though you wrote it down, it's still a secret. You know what I mean? But until you, you put those words out in the universe, um, then it becomes, for some reason, that becomes more real to me. Hmm. Uh, and I, I think that was the moment it became more real. Huh. Interesting. Well, racing was a living, you know, and then a family business, then a big business, then entertainment and all of the above. Um, tell us a couple stories that, when I say it was a living, it was a serious living. Your, you know, your grandfather took it seriously, very seriously. Uh, tell us about his uh, his first uh, 500 win. Yeah, you know, my, here's my grandfather. My my grandfather, it was a living. And I, and I tell people, it's funny, I, I gave a speech last night, I was doing some stuff, and I, and I use that in part of my, my speech on, on how, and I've said this before, 
Um, you know, you could you could set my granddad and you could set myself down. You could set my grand granddad, my dad, myself, and and Adam. Put us in four separate rooms, and you could go. You two guys could go from room to room and ask us all the same five questions. Mm-hmm. You know, and when you got through you would look at each other and you would say, those four guys don't even know each other. Um, they're, they're not related. They look at life different. Everything is just different. You right. know? And, I, and I know that sounds bizarre, but, it, but it's true. My granddad, my granddad was the first, and, and, and listen, the very first NASCAR driver um, who, that's all he did, was drive a race car. Right. Drive a race car. 1949, when he ran that first race at Charlotte, uh, and even though he wrecked, uh, and he came back and he run a few races, he and my grandmother sat down, and he realized that if he did certain things, that he could make a living doing this. Right. It wasn't just going to be a, a side hustle. He could make a living doing this. So they committed to being, being in the racing business, and that's what he was. From the end of 1949... Uh, until he passed away, he was in the racing business, but he was the first guy. Other guys like Buck Baker and, you know, the Flocks and all those guys, they had other businesses. They did other things. They just showed up on a, on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or a weeknight uh, and got in a car and got in somebody's car and drove it. And then they went back to work the next day. My granddad went back to work on a race car the next day. Right. That, that was his job. So that was, he did it for one reason, and I tell people, one reason, one reason only. Um, just, just uh, to make a buck, uh, to put food on the table. And that was the big deal of, of winning that Daytona 500. You know, that thing paid $20-some-thousand right. uh, to win. And, you know, and, and they came to the line there, and it was him and, and Bo Champ and Weatherly, um, and Joe was a lap down. Uh, Weatherly was a lap down, but it was a photo finish. And T. Taylor Warren had taken the picture, but they didn't get it to NASCAR headquarters for a couple of days for – and remember, this is, this is photography where you have to take the film out of the camera, right. go to a dark room and develop it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and T. Taylor had 10 million pictures uh, and always did. But, you know, and, and that was the deal. And he, my granddad protested that race. They gave that race to, to, to Johnny Beauchamp, right. and he won it. And um, it was funny, I, and I tell the story. My granddad, they kept, he kept talking to Bill, talking to Bill, and Bill kept saying, you didn't win, you know? And... Then finally, Bill called him on Tuesday or Wednesday and said, Lee, you're right. You won the race. And said, but I got bad news. He said, the trophy and Johnny have already <laughs> gone back to, to Iowa. And my granddad said, I really don't give a rat's in about that trophy, but I'll be by in 15 minutes to pick up my check. And, and that was the way it was. Yeah. He went by and got his check, and he didn't care about the trophy. You know, that's like winning the first Super Bowl and not really caring about anything but just getting the money and going home. Yeah. You know what I mean? Okay. Don't, don't worry about the trophy. Don't worry about, about anything else. And that's what my granddad, that's, that's why he raced. I, I, I'll tell you this story. So Don Naiman, um, when Don ran Talladega and ran the International Motorsports Hall of Fame, he called my granddad up and wanted him to come down. They had inducted him to induct him into the, to the Hall of Fame down there. And my granddad said no. And Don called back the next week. My granddad said no. Don called back, you know, the third week, and my granddad said no. And a couple of weeks went by, and Don called back, and he said, Lee, he said, we're going to send the plane to get you. We're going to fly you down here. We're going to put you up in the nicest hotel in Birmingham. And said, we'll, we'll take you out to the nicest restaurant, and we'll even give you a little money. And my granddad said, said Donnie, said, I've known you a long time, but 
at this point in life, I don't need the money and I don't need the publicity, so I won't be showing up. And he hung up the phone and he never went. And he wow, never went. Wow. Um, and, and because he didn't race to be famous. He didn't race to win trophies. He raced to put food on the table. Um, and that's what he did. My dad was exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. Um, all he cared about was the trophy. You could keep the money. You know what I mean? Hmm. He wanted to be that guy standing in victory lane on Sunday. Right. Um, and, and have everybody else loading their cars and look over there and see him hoisting that trophy over his head that he had kicked their rear end that day. Um, and more times than not, just about, <laughs> he was that guy standing in victory lane. Yeah. Uh, with, with that trophy over his head. So, the, the, the juxtaposition of those two people, um, and those two guys and the way they looked at racing and, and what they did. You know, my granddad didn't start until he was 36, 37, 38. Right. He was late in life. So, um, it, it would have been amazing if it was a different time and he could have started younger. But your granddad had it figured down to the penny, you know, and that, that, that oh, yeah. came up in the book during uh, your dad's first win, uh, sort of, the Grand National yeah. Race at Lakewood Speedway. Tell, tell us, yeah. <laughs> tell, it wasn't just a, it would, you know, there's, there's, there was a lot of thinking going on because your granddad was driving a convertible, and that made a difference. I mean, and it was a current year model car. Right. Um, and that, 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 was, that was the deal. You know, they, and they used to run the convertibles and the hardtops together, and they would do things, and and my granddad would study that entry blank, study that entry blank, man. And, you know, the entry blanks used to be, you know, if you were, you know, the first foreign born driver, or you lived in Connecticut and you won, you got a $50 bonus. Or, I mean, there were just all kinds of bonuses written into these things. And, um, you know, my granddad, my dad won the race and my granddad protested. Um, and, and, you know, he said, Richard was sitting on pit road when I lapped him and said, I should be a lap ahead of everybody. And sure enough, when they checked it, he was a lap ahead of everybody. And my grandmother was livid. Mm-hmm. Because it, was my, it, was, it was my dad's first, it was, would have been my dad's first win. Um, you know, his first big win. And my grandmother was livid about it. And, you know, my, grand, my granddad explained it. You know, the thing was, you know, he won in a current year model car. Uh, they were going to run first and second no matter what. Right. But if he, but if he won the race, uh, the family made $250 more. Um, and the business made $250 more. And that's what it was about. It was about making more money. And, um, you know, and, and Granddaddy always used to say that. That was always the saying. It's like, um, if anybody gives you something, don't take it. Because they don't want it. It ain't worth nothing. And it won't help you. You know what I mean? And his point was, which means you have to work for everything you get. Nobody's going to give you anything. You, you know what I mean? And if they do, it doesn't mean anything. And that's what he meant by that. That if he had given Richard Petty that win and kept his mouth shut, it didn't mean anything. It didn't mean anything to Richard Petty because it had been given to him. It didn't mean anything to anybody um, in the end. So, you know, he, he was hard-nosed about it. That's, I, I guess, listen, if you could put, if you could put, um, if there was a poster for tough love, that might be a poster for tough yeah, love. I would think so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, the, the dairy farmer you referenced in your book was a generational family, as was yours. Now, the dairy yeah. farmer, you know, went from mules to million-dollar tractors and satellites over the generations. Uh, how does that differ from racing jalopies to present-day cars and NASCAR and a racing family? You know, what was the difference between the two families, you know, investing their lives in their business, in your mind? There, yeah, there's, there is no difference. I, I, I don't see the difference. And, and that's, that's, all, that's always my point when I, 
when I refer back to the rural community that we lived in and, and the farmers. Um, you know, farmers, they plant a crop, it doesn't rain, um, and, you know, they've got five or six months invested in it, three or four months invested in it, uh, or the price of tobacco goes down while it's growing, um, and they don't make the money they thought they were going to make. It's the same thing, man. You build a brand-new race car, and it doesn't perform. Uh, my dad, and, and it's a perfect example, my dad in 1966 um, won, I, I don't know, 18 or 19 races, something crazy, uh, and a 66 in that 66 Plymouth. In 67, they built a brand-new race car. Took it to the racetrack the first five or six races of the year. My dad didn't like it. Um, he just said it wasn't a good race car. So they cut the nose off of that one and, and put it on the 66. They had already won 18 or 19 races. Um, and they took that old car, and although they had invested all their money in that 67, they went back to that old car, and that's the year he won 10 in a row and, and, and all those races that year. Um, you know, what do you win? 27 races, 10 in a row right, at some yeah. point in time? Yeah. Well, yeah, with, with an old car. You know, and that's the funny part. That car, for Richard Petty's 200 wins, that car won like 39 races. Okay, I want you to think about it in those terms. Right. You, you know yeah. what I mean? But, but my point is, my point is that, that is you invest in something and it doesn't always work out. Right. And that's the way farmers are. You know, you, 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 know you, you, you invest in your crops, you invest in whatever, and it doesn't always work out, man. But you know what? You don't stop farming. You don't no. start farming because the drought comes. You don't stop drought farming uh, because, the, because the price of beef went down or whatever, because that's what you do. And that's what we did. You know, you don't start farming because my dad and them came back from in 61 when my granddad, my granddad went over, uh, my dad went over the wall in turns one and two in the first qualifying race there at Daytona. And then my granddad and Johnny Bochamp went over the wall um, right there at the tunnel uh, in the second race that day. Uh, my granddad spent, what, six or eight months in a hospital down there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, for all intents and purposes, it ended his career in 61. Uh, he really, he drove a few races after that, but not a lot. But my dad and, and Dale and Uncle Maurice, they used to sit and talk about it. They came home from Daytona in February of, ni uh, of 1961. After winning the Daytona, the inaugural Daytona race in, in 59, they came home from Daytona in 61, broke, broke. They had no cars. They had nobody to work for them. Some of the guys had quit and went to work for other teams because they knew, uh, you know, Petty Enterprises only had a couple of cars and they just wiped them out at Daytona. There was nothing left. And they started from scratch. Uh, they started from scratch the week after Daytona in 1961. Three kids that were basically 22, 23, 24. Um, and my grandmother and my granddad, we're in Daytona in a hospital, and those three, those three people um, built Petty Enterprises back. And by the time they got to, to 64 and won championships in 67 and, and, and everything that they did, um, it, was, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't just given to them. They had to build it all back. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it, it's just that, that's, that's what people do. That's what farmers do. That's what racers do. That's what rural America does. Uh, it doesn't just lay down and quit. It just keeps digging. Um, and I think that's what racing has always been about. Absolutely. Your, uh, your first ARCA win paid uh, $4,100, $4,150, I think is what you wrote in the book. What did, what did Adam's first ARCA win uh, pay? Do you remember? 
you know, so interesting story. Interesting story. When, when, um, when we were doing the book, um, you know, Ellis had a, had a penchant from, for numbers. He always wanted to put numbers in there because he said people like to know how much money was won or how many laps down you were and stuff. I, it was, what, what's from 79 to that's what, 41 years later. Right. That was the first time I'd ever known how much money, how much money that race paid. I, I had no idea. All I knew was I got a trophy when I pulled in victory lane. Um, and uh, honestly, I never knew. I, ne- I couldn't tell you a single race I ever won um, that I knew how much money I made um, because that's, not, that's just not the, not the deal. And there's no telling. I don't know how much that ARCA race paid in Charlotte. Um, I, I, I do know that after everything that's happened in life, and, and it's like I've said in the book with, with Adam and the go-kart trophies and sure. the $15, right. is um, – you know, the, 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 the trophy from that ARCA race for Adam and for myself are priceless. Sure. Um, and then that, that, that's what they are. You know, so it doesn't, the money's long gone. I, I used to tell people that all the time. You know, people would say, man, your dad did this, and your dad won that. And he's, he made over, he was the first guy to a million dollars, and he won $100,000 doing this. And I'm like, listen, come to my house, walk through there. You won't see a single check on the wall. But you see a lot of trophies in the case. Uh, that 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 money gets spent, man. But those trophies last a long time. Yeah, that's true. The difference. What I was getting at when I was when I was uh, putting the questions together was, um, and and it doesn't really matter now that you've explained that. I remember the the part of you in explaining to Adam what the go kart cost to race. Did, was that explanation even pertinent with the Arca race? Did it matter anymore? No, it didn't matter then. Listen, here's what I tell people too. I, I, listen, Jim France and I were talking about this the other day, um, and and because he knows, even though they they preach this line and and we hear it all the time, cost saving and racing should never be mentioned in the same sentence mm-hmm. because it's just it's never going to happen. It's never no. it's never going to happen, dude. You know what I mean? If if yeah, I am I am going to spend. If you are a racer. You spend every dime you have to get that car to go faster. Yeah. You spend every dime. And I, listen, I don't care if you got a hundred bucks, that's what you're going to spend. If you got a thousand bucks, that's what you're going to spend, man. That's just the way it is. And, um, you know, that, that it's, it's funny how, how that is. Yeah. It, it, we had got to the point by the end that, that he knew that it was, that what we spent and what we took in was, was going to always going to be way upside down. Um, you just had to, uh, you, you just had to enjoy the moments when, when you did get a little bit of, uh, of a recoup on your dollar. Hmm. Okay, from high school band saxophone man to country music guitar player and singer, how the heck did that happen? I have no idea, dude. Um, <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> I, I tell people, so here's what happened. So in, and, I, and again, in the book, I write about that. So... Um, the, the, honestly, the first guy that, the first two guys I ever saw play a guitar was, was Bill Frazier, who was a preacher at the racetrack right. when I was a kid. And, and Marty Rock. And, and, you know, Marty from the late 60s and, and on into the early 70s, you know, he'd come and he'd run some races. Sure. Um, and sometimes, sometimes he'd sit around the Ramadi and pool or, you know, just kind of hang out in the lobby and play guitar. And I had seen people play guitar on TV. Um, but I'd never seen anybody in person, man, until I saw those two. And I knew that that's what, someday I was going to play. Um, I might not ever be any good at it, but I was going to play. 
So I played guitar, and then they started a band program at school. We didn't have a band program, and, and we were the first grade. Uh, when I was in the seventh grade, we were the first class um, that that started band. And then it was the seventh grade. Then the next year, it was the seventh and eighth grade. Then the year after that, it was the seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. And we really, you know, took the band program. And so I played the saxophone. My sister played uh, a flute, and my middle sister played the trumpet. She came along later, and she played the trumpet. My dad had played the trumpet in band. So, um, you know, it was crazy, so I, but I'd always played the guitar and never stopped playing. And a guy came to the racetrack and wanted to do a, uh, wanted to do a, a racing album with racing drivers. And we were like, sure, man. Yeah, let's do it. So um, myself, Dale Jarrett, man, Daryl. Again, Daryl was on the original one too. Uh, Bill Elliott, Ron Bouchard, all of us did it. We we just they gave us a song, we sang it, and that was it. And they said, "Okay, you got to go promote it." So uh, I was on my way to Riverside, and they asked me to stop through Nashville and be on a show. So I stopped in Nashville, went out to this show, sang my song, got back on a plane, went to Riverside, and um, it was crazy, man. It was Nashville now. I didn't know it was Nashville now on <laughs> Ralph Emery. I didn't yeah, know that yeah, was yeah. a big show. <laughs> Yeah, we we got three channels uh, where I live. We didn't have cable, man. <laughs> yeah, we were we were a long way in multiple years from cable out where I live. So uh, it was funny, and a guy saw it and he said, "Hey, would you be interested in trying this?" And I'm like, "Shoot, yeah, man, I'll try anything." And next thing I know, I'm um, had a little band open for Randy Travis and the Oak Ridge Boys and Hank Jr. and um, just ended up doing a bunch of stuff, man. Just a bunch of stuff for the next couple of years. Um, and really, but at the same time I was doing all that, I was driving, went to drive for the Wood Brothers, won a couple of races, and it was like, man, I need to focus on racing. So I kind of put the music stuff back to the side. and um, so I still play, man. I play today. I, I go out and play in, in bars and play in different places and uh, different songwriter conventions and stuff like that. I was just in Boone, North Carolina, a couple of weeks ago for a songwriting festival. So I still play, but not, not that that. I quit chasing that thing a long time ago. And um, it was like, I used to tell people, people were like, man, you know, it, why do you do that? And I'm like, I guess I do it for the same reason, you know, the morning of, of the Richmond race or the morning of Rockingham, Earnhardt gets up at 3.30 in the morning and climbs up in a tree stand and hunts until 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning. Because you love to. Right. Because that's your hobby. Yep. You know, because that's what you enjoy, you know. And, and it was, it always fascinated. Earnhardt was about the only one that understood it because he would say, I don't know why they mess with you about that music, man. He said, they don't mess with me about deer hunting. And I'm like, yeah, that's because you got a gun. They don't mess with you about deer hunting, dude. You know, maybe I should carry a gun, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. But um, it was the same thing. You know, that's the way I looked at music at that time. But writing, writing music and, and playing music, you know, as a, as a, as a fellow guitar player and, and, you know, sort of a singer, um, did it for a long time. And there are times when you're, 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 and you certainly had a lot of them in the book, as you mentioned, but we all have these times where we're, man, we're lost. We're, we're looking for something or we're celebrating something or whatever. Get the guitar out, sit in a room, and sometimes figure things out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Listen, it's like I tell people this all the time. You can be, you can be mad. You get that guitar out, and it never talks back to you, and right. it takes that sharpness away. You know, you can be sad, um, and it, it'll be sad right along with you if, if you want to. You know what I mean? It just goes wherever you go, and it, it is. 
it's that quiet time. You know, I, I think people, you know, and you tell kids, all right, take a breath, count to four. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Take a breath and count to four and, and then let's discuss it. And that's kind of the way the guitar always is. And, all, and music always has been for me is, you know, it's that time out. It's that place to go back to and, um, and find peace. And it, it's there in the good times and it's there in the bad times. And, you know, it never seems, it never has for me. I will say that. It's never, it's never left me in a place that I felt worse. Um, it's always made me feel better. Um, and I think to this day, to this day, man, um, I'll drag the, I'll drag to the airport, and I got two bags. One of them's a guitar case, and one of them's a, a couple pair of underwear, and, yeah. and, a, and a pair of pants and a shirt. And I, I take that guitar everywhere I go, man. I've gone, I, I still got the same old guitar. I've gone through a number of cases. I can tell you that. <laughs> uh, fly, flying commercial. I've gone through. A number oh man, of cases, yeah. But, oh yeah. Yeah, but but it is, uh, but it's still something I do all the time, man. I, I, there's never a day that passes that I that I don't pick it up and, and play for at least 10 or 15 minutes uh, at, at the least amount I play. So quiet time with your guitar and quiet time when you're in the cockpit of a car. Similar? Yeah, in some ways. Yeah. In some ways, you know, yeah, and, and, and I never thought about it until, uh, honestly, I never thought about it until, until Adam's accident. When Adam's accident happened, um, then I got out of the cup car and um, I drove his car. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest of the rest of that year. Um, and we didn't change anything. We didn't change the seat. We didn't change the steering wheel location. We didn't change anything. I just had to adapt to everything that, that he had. Right. Um, and, and I would tell people, you know, it, it's incredibly peaceful in there. You know, it's incredibly peaceful to slide into the same seat that he sat in, to hang on to the same steering wheel that he said it, that he hung on to, to look out the same windshield and, and see the same stuff. So, I think for me, that's when I realized how peaceful it really was in a car. You know, and, and I say that all the time now about, you know, you see drivers on pit road and they're being pulled in 10 million different Right, directions. yeah. And, and, and you ask, and, you know, people are like, man, it's, it's they're leading up to the 500. They got to be nervous. They got to be this. And you know what? They're not nervous. They're just antsy. But when they get in that car and they strap that helmet on, there's a calmness. There, there's something that just comes over you. Because that's where you belong. That's where you feel like you were born to be. Uh, and that's where you want to be. So I, I think there's, and knowing, knowing your place in the world and knowing your place in the universe uh, is, is a good thing. And I think most race car drivers know that. And, and no matter how much they want to complain about things or, or, or look at things in different ways, they know that the greatest day of their life and the greatest time of their life is when they crawl through that window uh, and they sit in there. Um, and they, they don't take that for granted. I, I don't know if a single driver, as much as, as many drivers as I've ever known, I don't know if a single driver who's ever taken that for granted. Um, and that's why I always feel sad, you know, when I, when I watch guys like my dad and I've watched guys like, um, you know, Tony Stewart and mm-hmm. Bill Elliott and, um, you know, Jeff Gordon, Jimmy Johnson, um, you know, when, when, they, when they finally sit down and they say, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, that's a sad day. That's a sad day for me because I know, I know where they're at, you know, and I know that when you're, when, and I tell people, when you're four or five years old and you dream, you dream of being a race car driver. You dream of sitting in that seat, hanging on to that steering wheel, staring out that windshield, and the guy in front of you is 
Richard Petty or David Pearson or Dale Earnhardt Sr. or Bill Elliott or Jeff Gordon or Jimmy Johnson or Kyle Larson or Kyle Busch, however, whatever generation you came along, that's what you see. Um, and when you get to that place where, where you don't do it anymore, then you give up that five-year-old dream. You, you give up that dream that you dreamed, that you dreamed your whole life. You know, that, that was always the, the heart of your, you didn't dream about doing TV commercials. You didn't dream, no. you didn't dream about no. having a, having a mm-hmm. sponsor, you know, and, and doing that. You don't dream that stuff. You know, nobody dreams that stuff, man. You dream about the act of driving a race car. And when you can't do that anymore, that's when that dream is put away in a box. And that, that's why it always makes me sad. Well, speaking of generations, how would a Dale Earnhardt Jr. book differ from yours? You know what? Not a lot. Not, not a lot. Um, you know, and we talked about a lot of things, you know, like uh, when he told his dad that he wanted to be a race car driver and different things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, it's crazy. It's just similar. You, you know what I mean? Um, and, and I, but I don't, I don't think it would be a, a lot different than what Harrison Burton told Jeff. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, right. Yeah. It, it, anytime you have a son that grows up in it, you have a lot of the same shared experiences. The, the difference would be, you know, that when I came along and I was doing it, um, the hit TV show was the Brady Bunch. When Earnhardt came along, it was Friends. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's, it's the background. <laughs> okay, yeah. I never thought of it. It's the background that, that changes. But, but the basic intent and the basic things that, that you go through uh, with your dad and the basic things that you go through in racing, um, they're, they're probably pretty close to the same. Interesting. Well, you know, I read the book several times, and uh, I expected from the title, Swerve or Die, I expected a big race scenario where you were forced to swerve or die. What did I miss in there? No, that's not what it was about, man. So, so the music thing influenced the title. Okay. Okay, so let me, let, me, let me go back to that. All right. So, you know that any, any great song, uh, listen, I don't care what it is, whether it's, even if it's not words, when you first hear that lick for Sweet Home in Alabama, in Alabama yeah, you know it's yeah. Sweet Home Alabama. Right. Uh, you know what I mean? When, when, you know, achy, breaky heart, whatever, whatever hook you want to use, there's a hook in every song. A hook in every song. And it draws you in. And, and the great songs have great hooks. You know, your cheating heart, whatever. You know, they, yeah, they, that's right. have, great, mm-hmm. they have great hooks. So my hook for this book was Swerve or Die. <laughs> that's so interesting. When you, know, when you know that Kyle Petty drove a race car, and he's writing about Swerve or Die, you has got to be a good book. It just man. sucks you, you in. you got to get it. It, just, <laughs> it, should, it should just pull you in. You know, and, and, the, and the premise of Swerve or Die is this. You know, as I, as, as I went through it, and, and like Ellis and I, when we came up and I, I talked about it, is that if you look at the book, you know, whether it's my granddad um, and his accident and, you know, Randy's accident and Adam's accident and, you know, and the good times and the bad times, it doesn't make any difference. There's so many times, where, whether, you know, that, that I, my family, my dad, um, us collectively, the Petty family, right. could have just stopped and said, we're not doing this anymore. You know, we're not, we're not, it, it costs too much. You know, it's the price we pay to be in this sport is, is too great. Um, but you know what? You don't, you swerve, you change direction. You don't stop. You don't die. Um, you keep moving. 
And, and I think the sport has always done that too. You know, from the time my granddad started, and it was, you know, and people like to talk about the sport as, well, it came from the moonshiners, you know, and it's all about liquor. Right. And, and it, it's not all that. It, it's not all You know, it, 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 the sport really came into its own right after World War II. Sure. When these kids were, were coming back from Europe and they'd seen such atrocities and so much devastation. Uh, and you can't, put, you can't put a 19-year-old back on a farm in North Carolina when, when he's seen so much death and destruction in Europe. It, it, it changed his life. He, he can't unsee what he saw. So they needed a way to blow off steam and, you know, running fast cars was part of it. And, and it, so everything kind of come together to form this sport in the beginning. But as the sport went through the 50s and into the 60s and the manufacturers got into it, boom, it swerves toward the manufacturers. And then when the manufacturers pull out, boom, the sport swerves over to R.J. Reynolds. And then when R.J. Reynolds' TV comes in in the late 70s and it swerves in a different direction. This sport has always been... And in and, and simplistic terms, a chameleon. It can be whatever it needs to be at whatever given time to be relevant to that time. And I think it's, it's evident today in the car that we have, the next-gen car, trying to be relevant to what the car manufactures and what the audience thinks a race car should be. Um, you know, the independent rear suspension, the rack and pinion steering, the sequential shift, um, so many things in this car composite bodies, so many things in this car um, just transfer to what other forms of racing and what people think this, this thing should be. So I think when you look at it, um, the sport has always done that. And by, by, by proxy, our family has always done that because we've had to move right along with it. So that, that's kind of where the title part comes from. Well, where can folks, talking about titles, where can folks get a copy of the book? You can get a copy of the book at Amazon, um, Books a Million. Books a Million has been great, man. Uh, Barnes & Noble, a lot of local bookstores, a lot of local book, book, book dealers are, are carrying it. Um, Audible for audio or, or Apple uh, podcast, you can go there. You can find it a lot of different places. Um, and it's been good. You know, like I said before, I don't know what it's sold now. I, I probably need to check. I can find out on Wednesdays. Wednesdays are the only days I can find out on. Does he give you so a trophy? I or? Yeah, I, I, no. I wish they would give me a trophy for something. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you my one trophy story. All I ever wanted was trophies. Trophies. One, one. So my first cup race, you know, I, I'm running fifth at, at, at Richmond. And Earnhardt and Daryl decide they're going to take each other out. And in the process, Rutman gets in it, and so does Jeff Bodine. And I'm running fifth. I weave my way through the crash and I win the race. Yeah. And I am, man, I'm pumped, dude. This is my first cup win. I don't care how you get there. It's a, it's a NASCAR Winston Cup at the time. It's a cup win. And I get to victory lane and Richmond doesn't give, give trophies. They give plaques. Um, oh. And I was, and I was so spun out, man. I didn't want a plaque. I get a plaque for the Pinewood Derby, dude. And I want a plaque. You, you know what I mean? I want a trophy, dude. I want a trophy. So it was so, so funny, man. And so I, I complained about it for about 15 years. And finally, uh, the Richmond Fairgrounds, they made me a base to put my plaque on so it looks like so a So it looks like a trophy. And, that and is I, so cool. Yeah, and that's, that's what they said, man. They said, at least it'll look like one. So that, that, that was a cool thing. Well, I know you're excited about the future of NASCAR, and we're excited about the future of Kyle. Um, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. And, and come back and visit, please. And bring your guitar. 
Yeah, thank you, man. All right, man. Next time I will bring a guitar and we'll do it. All right, Kyle Petty, uh, thanks for taking the time to be with us here on Bud's Garage Overdrive. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you, guys. Well, anytime we're talking about classic car restoration, we're always talking about year one. Oh, yeah. Classic car restoration people. Mm -hmm. They've got a deal going on right now if you're a Chevrolet guy and you you want a crate engine, Mm -hmm. you know, you want decent horsepower, you want a one-year or a two-year unlimited mileage warranty, you can get an engine from year one. And they have two different versions. They have a version that's got aluminum heads on it. It's called a AT305 PC1. Uh, you can go to their website and see what that's all about. But it's a forty nine forty nine ninety three. It's got specific heads on it, Edelbrock aluminum intake manifold. Or you could go to the uh, Power Crate 400 horsepower 350 engine. Or you can go to the 400 horsepower crate engine 350 with cast iron heads on it. So these are all 350. These, are, these are both 350 engines, mm-hmm. and they are and they use seasoned blocks. They're dyno tested. And they got the good harmonic balancers and stuff on them. Yeah. And uh, like I say, you can go to year one and spec these engines out. They come with a dyno sheet and a warranty. Wow. And you cannot beat that. No, that's a great price. Just go to their website, year one, and get their, their monthly blast that they come out with. And they, they, do, they do two or three a week. Mm-hmm. And they have so many things that are, you know, eligible for discounts. You mentioned Bud 20. Right. And uh, you can get a discount on discountable items. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they can get you going down the highway. So you, you can take the engine. Let's say you've got a small block Chevy hot rod and, uh, you know, you want to save that specific 327, 350 horse. You yeah. know, but you want to drive the thing every day. Get one of these engines. You know, right. for the money, 4200 for the iron head one, 49 for the uh, aluminum head one. That's a bargain. It says bargain, and then I got a suggestion a little later on in the show to hook up with these engines. And, uh, okay. But for now, check them out at yearone.com, uh, your classic car restoration folks. All right. Perfect reaction time. So, as you can tell from the background, time for reaction time. Your reaction, Tim. What do you think of uh, the Wow, that's what an incredible, incredible story that we might never have heard had it not been for the pandemic and the situation that it caused, which gave him pause to sit and write this book. Well, it, it, it gave him, it, there wasn't anything he could do. He had, like you said, he had a pregnant wife at home. Yeah. Didn't want to go out because we didn't know, you know, mm-hmm. how that would affect, you know, an unborn child and all that. So they just right. stayed hunkered down and uh, it, <laughs> no broadcasting to do, none of that because he, he wasn't leaving the house. Right. Can't blame them. No. So I, I got to wondering. I hope, first of all, that we see a second book mm-hmm. from the stories that wound up on the, as they say, on the editor's floor, like, a, you know, from a film or something like that. Right. Um, because I think it would have a different slant than the rest of the book has. The rest of the book is pretty historical. It's mm-hmm. not. I've read other racing books where the author says, well, I go to this race, such and such, and here's how it turned out, and it's kind of a, a mini, you know, explanation of the race. Right. And then they then they fast forward to another race, and, and it's, after a while, every race is kind of the same. Yeah. It's about the race. But this was, this was about the family. Right. And it was about the times. And uh, as he said, you know, we, we, a lot of folks attribute the moonshining to the racing thing, mm-hmm. but it was before that. Right. It was it was like the guys 
We've talked about it on the air before on, on Bud's Garage, the uh, radio program, about the SCCA. The SCCA, you know, came about because these guys that were over in World War II or the Korean War, mm-hmm. you know, once they got back here, uh, life was completely different. But they remember seeing these little sports cars in Europe. Sure. And, uh, you know, some of them brought them back with them. And uh, on one end, you had the stock cars, you know, just for the 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 thrill of it. Right. Because when you're when you're a tail gunner or something like that in a bomber, how do you come back to the field, the fire exactly. field? Exactly. And uh, so you, you have you you still have that adrenaline need, I guess mm-hmm. would be fear slash adrenaline. Right. You get used, to, you know, you you overcome your fears and it becomes a an adrenaline rush for you. Some of the things you do and you work through it with that. Mm-hmm. And um, it was the same with stock cars and sports cars. And th- and that's that's something you pointed out in the book right from the get go. Um, that was a little different than what I expected. Yeah. You know, as to how it started. Mm-hmm. Because they were the first people to do it as a living. Right. Now, what I didn't get a chance to ask him, and we will ask him again, because he'll be on with us at another point, is he did not take his celebrity status seriously. No. It was what they did. Mm-hmm. Just like it was what the farmer did, the dairy exactly. farmer. Yeah. Uh, it was the people on the outside that made a big deal out of the family. Right. And he, he was thankful for it when Adam got killed in his practice wreck uh, for the Bush race. He was thankful for that part of celebrity status, if you want to call it that, because he got so much mail and, and you know, things from people, condolences, mm-hmm. that it, it, it made him feel less alone, if you will. Yeah. And that, that's in the book. He talks about, you know, being... Being alone in a crowded room, and you know that—that's—that's that's how grief can be. You oh, know, sure. You, you just think nobody understands this. It's like it's like having a disease or something, and you're you're in a room, everybody looks normal, right? Yeah, but you're you're struggling. Yeah. Right. And he said all the condolences from outside of racing, from mm-hmm. fans, stuff that, well, they and they got some of that. They lost other members of the family. Uh, the petty teams did. It wasn't the first time they came back from the racetrack. Minus a, a crew member or a mm. driver. And uh, so it was, I think with the internet and the electronics and the TV and all that stuff, it was a different different thing for Kyle than it would have been for his dad right. back in the day. So, um, But I'd, I encourage you to get the book, even if you're not a NASCAR fan. Because what you realize is, if you have the time, if any of us had the time or took the time to kind of write our own story, mm-hmm. it would be very similar. Oh, sure. You know, yeah, I'm not a racer. You're not a racer. But you have a story to tell. Sure. And, and if, you, if you had that story to tell, you might do a little research into your family mm-hmm. other than the stories that were told to you from your father, or your grandfather, or other folks in the family. Right. You might find out more interesting things about the folks in your family. And it, you know, it, it makes that it makes that connection between all of us. Yeah. You know what? What became of our great 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 grandfather, and, and why mm-hmm. our grandfather, or even even our dads? You know, what did they go through that we'll never experience? And exactly. you know, how did it affect them raising us? And how do you know we raise our kids? And how does you know how do our 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 influences and and the things that we're exposed to affect raising our kids and how will their kids be different 
And it shows how society evolves. Kind of. I don't know if either you or I have evolved a whole lot, but, you know. No, you're probably <laughs> right about that, bud. <laughs> I mean, we're still knuckle-dragging to some extent. Yeah, but, we are. But just look at the, you know, look at the, the first race, you know, being on the sand in yeah. Daytona. And then what you have nowadays, this right. massive speedway and stuff like that. How do you, how do you even wrap your head around that? Yeah. Could, could, could the guys that are racing now go back to 1949 and actually race? He, as he tells a story about that in the book where his first race with the older racers, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the names that we remember from the past. Yeah. The guys that, you know, had a package of cigarettes rolled yeah, up rolled in their, up in in their, their shirt sleeves, sleeves yeah. and, they're, and they're racing in a, a pair of painter's pants and a, a T-shirt and a, mm-hmm. a, a leather, I don't know what the helmet was made out of, but it wasn't very fancy. And, uh, you know, he tells a story, and he gets out of the car, and, and the car didn't have any power steering or anything. It was back right. in that day. And he says he ran that race, and he got out of that car, and he was just, you know. And he was in his he was in his 20s. These guys were all in their 40s. Mm-hmm. And he got out of the car, and he, he's literally sitting next to the car, just wiped, wore out in, the, out. in right. the infield. Right. And one of the drivers comes up to him with a cigarette and a beer, a beer in his hand, smoking a cigarette, and he says, harder than it looks, ain't it, kid? <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, that's... Uh-huh. That 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 just tells uh, you know yeah. how how things evolve. Sure. So I uh, I look forward to uh, his second book. I hope there is one. And he's excited about the future. You know, I have my questions about NASCAR and what direction they're going. And he he kind of has the he kind of has the the take that you can't control the direction it's going. So you may as well get on for the ride. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. He, he he rides a bull in his book because. He mm-hmm. wanted to try it. Right. And he had no idea what direction the, the bull was going. He didn't happen to go the same direction as the <laughs> bull. But, you know, that's that's the kind of the, the things you can't worry about. Right. You just got to hang on. Because NASCAR is going to keep doing what they're doing. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, face it, the, the music and everything that's around the races and, the, you know, it's all it's all changing. Yeah. And it is it is evolving. Well, it's become a huge business. Oh, Absolutely. And that's what drives everything, is the money. The money, money, money. Mm-hmm. We're going to try to evolve, too. Yeah. Good for, luck with that. Not in this podcast. Maybe no. for the next one. Huh? <laughs> Tim, I'm, yes. I'm going to spring a brainstorm on you. Okay. Er, early, <laughs> earlier in the show, we were talking about year one. Right. And their uh, crate engines you can buy. They've mm-hmm. got a cast iron engine, uh, cast iron head engine. They've got an aluminum head engine. Uh, very reasonably priced. Right. You know what I'm thinking? I know what you're thinking. I'm, I'm going to get one of these engines, and then uh-huh. I'm going to go to our buddies at Concept One right. and spec out a pulley system with it. Oh, yeah. Because these, these are a long, well, you know, the engines that year one has are long blocks. Mm-hmm. But then you go to Concept One, you can get the AC compressor, you can get the alternator, you can get the water pump, you can get all of that in a package, and it looks beautiful. Oh, yeah. And it's a serpentine belt system. And, you know, you're ready to rock and roll. It's made to fit that engine. There's no extra additional no. fabricating to do. You don't have to scrounge to junkyards and all right. that kind of stuff. You get your power steering pump, you know, get get all of it. Mm. And then you can spec it out to your car. You can put the alternator if, you know, you're putting in a massive sound system or right. you're fuel injecting it or something like that. Because the engine is a carbureted type manifold, but you could put a, a Holley uh, 
Yeah, uh, sniper. Sniper on mm-hmm. it. And so you might want to amp up the alternator, no pun intended, a little bit, uh-huh. uh, to you know provide the power for that. Right. Uh, your power steering, depending on what kind of, uh, whether you're using rack and pinion or parallelogram steering or whatever it might be on it. You know, you could you could spec that out, your yeah. AC unit, and, you know. And then you're all set. You you're get everything set. together. You're, and then, you're and all one, set for under ten grand for yeah. the engine and the pulley system. And in one weekend, you can put it all together, and yeah. it'll work. Yeah. Shoot, Check out be. the things that they got. When you call up Concept One in Cumming, Georgia, you are talking to the guys running the CNC machines, mm-hmm. the guys that have gone to school and spec this stuff out. And, and learn how to run these machines and design the system. They've been doing this for years. Uh, it's Randy and Kevin Red, and their dad works there with them, and, and they built some fantastic things. And if you've got an idea for something that's a little out of the ordinary and they've got experience with it, they'll help you out. Oh, you know, yeah. I go in there and I see engine blocks with blowers on them and stuff like that where I know mm-hmm. they're, eh, they're, they're helping somebody out with something. And, right. Uh, they, they've got some interesting things that are coming down the line that we'll talk about at a later date. That would be a tease. But for now, check them out at ConceptOnePulleySystems.com. Okay. Well, Tim, as they say in the business, well, we are in the business. Yeah. They, that's, yeah. A, that's a wrap. Oh, okay. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> we want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, thank our guests, uh, Aaron Hughes and uh, Kyle Petty. Uh, great. You know, both of them are, are great at what they do. And uh, we're just happy to, you know, to be in that circle of friends. Oh, yeah. They're at the very top of their game. Now, next week, we are going to go behind the scenes mm-hmm. with a truck driver. Not any old truck driver. No. But a truck driver for the IMSA series and many other road racing series. Uh, local guy. His name is Reggie Murphy. Mm-hmm. And he is going to tell you how he got into this okay. craziness. And, uh, you know, what it's like being out there on the road and all the interesting people you meet. You know, sure. he's, he's going to talk about other truck drivers, car car enthusiasts, racers, musicians, mm-hmm. all, all the cool things. And, uh, you know, he spent years and years on the road with these rigs, uh, some of the prettiest rigs, by the way. Oh, yeah. Driving these trucks. Uh, so that'll be good fun. Also, we want to remind you of Bud's Garage, the radio program, which is on uh, WDUN AM 550 and FM 102.9. And you can also live stream it. It's on Saturdays at noon. And you can catch the podcast on any of your favorite podcast sites, uh, like the one you're listening to this on. Yes. And uh, we thank you for being part of Bud's Garage, Bud's Garage mm-hmm. Overdrive. Remember to keep between the ditches, shiny side up. We will see you next week right here on your favorite podcast site. Bud's Garage Overdrive. That's a wrap. Okay. Okay.